This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Okay, so the other day we had a podcast about the left's war on convenience, how they are trying to take away your refrigerators and your gas-powered car and your gas-powered stove and your gas-powered lawnmower and everything that everything basically in your life that works, they are waging war on. Well, this week we're talking about the left's war on Africa <laughs> and how they don't want those people to ever have those things to begin with. <laughs> Let me just give you a few stats about Africa so we can we can put this on because I know most of us don't focus on Africa every day, but newsflash, desperately poor continent with very little access to energy. And and the left wants to keep it that way because we're talking about green neocolonialism here. So two-thirds of Africans have no access to reliable electricity. Per capita energy consumption in sub-Saharan Africa is 185 kilowatts per hour. In Europe, it's 6,500 kilowatts per hour. In the U.S., it's 12,700 kilowatts per hour. So an American fridge uses more electricity than a typical African person does, okay? This is a desperately, desperately poor continent. They need cheap, reliable fossil fuels to grow their economy. And so the Western elites here in Washington and Europe and other capitals, all the developed countries that built their economies using fossil fuels from poverty into the great economic powers we are with all the conveniences that we enjoy, are telling Africa, you need to leapfrog fossil fuels and go straight to renewable energy, which is not reliable, which is not cheap. And so the problem is the Western elites are concerned about climate change. Africans are concerned about poverty. This is just, it's its so elitist, it's racist, it's neocolonialist, it's all the things that the left says that the right supposedly is. They are exercising all of these virtues, or vices rather, in their policies towards Africa. I, let me put this even more simply. You know how the nanny state is trying to tell you how to live what to do, where to put your grocery shopping, what to do with your shopping bags, how to drink your water, what to drink your drink out of, and what kind of straw to use. Okay, all mm -hmm. of that. That has been replicated. That nanny statism has been replicated in our policy towards the poorest continent in the world, Africa. We are telling them, no, you can't do what we did. You can't have that fridge. You can't have those jobs. You can't have that can't industrialized. Have <laughs> you can't have that industrialized economy. Mark read out some of the statistics, but but okay, let's say that you are a climate fanatic. You know, obviously we are not, but there are there are reasonable arguments to be made about trying to mitigate the impact of fossil fuels. Let's just talk a moment about Africa, okay? So Africa has enormous energy needs, as Mark just detailed, right? Nigeria, just to pick the, the a country that is not most like the United States, but about the same size as the United States. They have 1% of the capacity that we have. So get this, guys. 
if sub-Saharan Africa increased, this is from The Economist, which did a really good piece on this last year, if sub-Saharan Africa increased its energy consumption fivefold, and all of it came exclusively from natural gas, not from renewables, that would equal roughly 1% of global emissions. The impact that these draconian green rules coming from Europe and the United States have had on climate and climate change have been so small as to be almost immeasurable. And let me add a layer of complexity to this, Danny, which is <laughs> that I, I don't think, I don't know if you know this, but Europe and America are predominantly white and Africa is predominantly black. And since we have to look at everything through the prism of identity politics today, what you are seeing is white Europeans and Americans dictating to black Africans, the nanny state, what kind of energy they can and cannot have. The, the same people who tell us that our system is systemically racist are exercising that systemic racism when it comes to dictating towards Africans what they cannot and cannot use and telling them basically that you either go with green energy or yes, you're going to live in poverty. I mean, what, this what, is what, everything they decry at home. They are doing to the actual continent of Africa. What is mysterious to me is that during the 1980s, America was completely obsessed with the apartheid system in South Africa, and rightly so. It was a terribly unjust system of, of not simply minority rule, but of oppression, a two-tier system of government for blacks and for whites, or not even just blacks, but also Indians and, and others in South Africa. And this was the object of a huge obsession on the part of both Republicans and Democrats. The Congressional Black Caucus talked about little else. And yet now, as we are busy trying to keep Africa down, those voices are silent. Very. Where, where are those guys? They're too busy trying to take away our refrigerators and gas-covered cars <laughs> to, to care what happens on the continent of Africa. Let me just give you a few more stats from our friend Bjorn Lomberg, who is the greatest source of wisdom when it comes to these things. He says, a single person in the rich world uses more fossil fuel energy than all the energy available to 23 poor Africans. The, the rich world became wealthy exploiting fossil fuels, which still provides three quarters of our energy, yet we're choking off funding to any new fossil fuels in the developing world. This is what we're doing to these people. And by the way, you know, right now, because there's an energy crisis in Europe, in part because of the war in Ukraine, in part because of bad policies, we've got inflation going, which has raised the cost of fuels. And so what are we doing in the West? Let's use coal. Coal is making a resurgence here because we have to keep energy prices down. We can't let gas prices go up. We can't get the heating and cooling prices going up or all the rest of it. But we won't let the Africans do the same thing. So literally, the hypocrisy is we are increasing our use of dirty fossil fuels here at home right now to get us through the hump of this energy price spike. But we won't allow Africans to do the same thing. It is, it is just green neocolonialism, and it's, it's just simply appalling. It is appalling. And... Let us now pinpoint who is at the heart of so much of this idiocy. <laughs> we should really name this the I Can't Stand John Kerry podcast because he, that elitist putz, has been instrumental in perverting policies that are meant to help in Africa. So remember one of George W. Bush's signature programs, one that he got absolute accolades for rightly from both Democrats and Republicans was PEPFAR. 
You, I mean, you mm-hmm. remember Pepfar. Yeah, sure. So John Kerry has been instrumental in trying to pervert Pepfar. John Kerry has tried to insert climate change goals into all of our Africa development programs, including programs that have nothing to do with energy. So, you know, forget Power Africa, the great congressional initiative from 10 years ago that was focused (laughs) on trying to get energy projects in Africa across the finish line. Forget that and what John Kerry is trying to do to that. We talk about that with our guests a little bit. Kerry is trying to impose climate change goals into PEPFAR, right? So... PEPFAR is not supposed to use trucks. PEPFAR is not supposed to use other climate-impacting tools in order to follow its goals. But, but, but wait, it gets better. Kerry has also tried to, tried to inject climate goals into women's empowerment programs in Africa. Now, you might ask yourself, if you were a normal person, what the hell climate has to do with women's empowerment in Africa? But no, they want to ensure that all of the women are carbon free. I kid you not. This is not, this sounds like some sort of hideous joke. No, it's not actually a joke. Carrie's not really in any way seriously focused on getting China, the main emitter, or India, the main emitter, to power back. No, no, he's focused on making sure that women in Africa are carbon neutral. It's unbelievable. Are you carbon neutral, Danny? I, I am not carbon neutral. I'm not carbon neutral either. <laughs> so here's a stat for you. Of the 900 million people in sub-Saharan Africa, excluding South Africa, 80% get their energy from renewables. That's not a good thing. What that means is that they are not actually using a great deal of energy because right. renewable energy can't provide the energy needs for it can it can right pow- that top line is completely misleading you know like that that sounds like a good thing oh my gosh there it's a renewable continent it's a green continent and you like that no it's a poor continent bob is and- using 100% less oxygen than his wife tina why bob is dead exactly <laughs> there you go that's a perfect analogy and so think about this wind and solar what a lot of people don't realize why can't we just turn to wind and solar why because the technology isn't there yet we and the storage isn't because, there yet that's the point we don't have batteries that are capable of storing wind and solar energy for commercial use so what that means is if you don't have wind and sun you don't have energy i think the nigerian vice president said no one in the world has been able to industrialize with renewable energy it's never happened in the history of mankind a country has industrialized with renewable energy but we're forcing them to do it we're forcing them to try and lift well, themselves out of poverty to. and grow their with one hand with both hands tied behind their backs. They're not going to. They're that, not that's going? the whole point. There no country ever has and there may come a day, there may come a day when we when countries are able to rely on renewable energy in a very serious way, but that day isn't here. So why we are forcing it down Africa's throats is completely mysterious but to me. But if your goal if your goal is to alleviate poverty, if your but goal it's is not, to unleash it's not. I know, but that's my point. Look, what you do when you want to alleviate poverty is what is the cheapest, most reliable, most abundant way to give energy to an economy in order to help the most businesses grow, help the most people lift themselves out of poverty? It's fossil fuels. Okay, it's just that there is no competition. There is no reliable, renewable energy that can do that. So we should be funding fossil fuel projects in Africa nonstop. As much as we can. Yes. And, and not in this world of current leadership. White or- liberals know better than the Africans what they need. That's what it comes down to. I mean, you know, again, they're the ones who said everything's identity politics. So I'm just playing by their game. It's white <laughs> liberals, elites who are dictating to poor black Africans 
what kind of energy they're allowed to use. Okay, I'm, I have more on white liberal elites because I want to talk about Samantha Power, but we'll do that after <laughs> we talk to our guest, who I think lays this out very nicely. Todd Moss, it's the first time, his first time on with us. He was the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, he, but he's now the Executive Director of the Energy for Growth Hub, a fellow at the Center for Global Development, and a non-resident scholar at Rice University's Baker Institute and the Colorado School of Mines. That's really cool. He also has a substack for everybody who likes to read substacks. It's called Eat More Electrons. Here's our interview. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. You wrote a fascinating piece for foreign policy, and it's about how there's a neocolonialist conspiracy to keep Africa poor by denying them the energy they need to grow. Talk to us a little bit about it. <laughs> well, look. Those are my words, not that... yours, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, I think I think the big picture is that the global energy transition is happening. And most people think of the global energy transition as about being the U.S., Europe and other rich countries moving from fossil fuels to cleaner energy sources. And that's all true. But the other big global energy transition, what's even more important, is what's happening in Africa, Asia, Middle East, where countries are building a tremendous amount of energy infrastructure to meet their needs to create industries, to power economic growth, and especially for jobs. And so, you know, we look out at, say, out to 2050, and 90% of the additional electricity that the global economy is going to need in 2050 is it's outside high-income countries. It's in the emerging and middle-income uh, and lower-income countries. So that's the big story, and the U.S. really needs to play a leadership role for economic reasons, for national security reasons, for climate reasons, to help make sure that that transition happens and that it happens as fast as possible. Um, because people are going to need energy, and we don't want to just just cede that space to our strategic competitors. Okay, so first of all, I, let me correct Mark. I, I so often have to correct Mark. The expression <laughs> neocolonialist conspiracy to keep Africans poor, are, those are actually your words. That's a quote from your piece in Foreign <laughs> Policy. And and the one that I, I, you have a substack called Eat More Electrons. And, and yeah. you had, had a piece I particularly liked with, called We Can't Afford for Everyone to Live Our Lifestyles. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, <laughs> you know, not not to escalate super quickly, but oh, go ahead. But this is this is the most paternalistic, racist set of ideas, and I don't want to accuse the Chinese because the Chinese are fine with neocolonialist rape of Africa, you know. It, but those of us who profess to have reformed our nineteenth-century policies seem to be embracing similar policies, but by another name. In other words, you know, well you know, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the big problem with what I've been writing about is that while we're trying to push renewable energy and renewable energy is going to play a big part in our energy future and in the future of poor countries, pushing renewables does not mean we only push renewables. And what's happened is there's been, a, in my view, a very worrying trend where the ways that we finance global infrastructure are being pushed into two different tiers. So for the rich countries, we can do whatever we need to do for our own energy security. But poor countries, particularly in Africa, they are reliant on a set of global institutions, our 
increasingly under the pressure of Europeans and American policymakers to go renewables only. Now, that's not technically the U.S. policy. There is a little bit of nuance there, but the way it's been interpreted is that if the U.S. is going to uh, encourage, you know, building power plants overseas, we want them to only be green. And that's completely un- unfair, unjust, and that's not what we're doing in our own country. Well, I mean, it is neocolonialist in the sense that, look, we built our economies and our prosperity and everything that we have with cheap, reliable fossil fuels. And then we decided that the world needs to stop that. And so we want to deny Africans the chance to do the same thing. Yeah, look, I think look, Af- Africans want cheap, reliable power systems. They want to do it as clean as possible. In some places like Kenya, that's going to be that's going to be close to zero carbon because they've got geothermal. In Ethiopia, it's going to be close to zero carbon because they've got large hydro. But in lots of countries that have, say, natural gas, and this would include Mozambique, Tanzania, Ghana, Senegal, Nigeria, they have a lot of gas. They're exporting gas to richer countries. They want to use some of that natural gas for their own industry and for their own power systems. And particularly, gas pairs very well with solar. So if you want to have a high solar power system, the best thing to pair that with is gas because it can ramp up and down very quickly. One of the reasons why solar is neither cheap nor reliable is that we don't have the battery technology to store it. So if you don't have wind and sun, you don't have power, right? So why are we making Africans rely on an unreliable, expensive form of energy when there's plenty of cheap, reliable fossil fuels right there in their continent? And because of their poverty, they're so dependent on Western institutions to finance the development. We're actually taking fossil fuels from Africa and using them in the West, but we don't want to let them build their economies using fossil fuels. Well, Mark, I think that's exactly right. You know, countries are exporting gas to to richer countries, but if they want to build downstream power plants and local industry that would use those same fossil fuels, they are being told, no, don't do that for, for the reasons of climate. That's the definition um, of neocolonialism. It, 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 it is. It is. It's also the, you know, the power structure of global finance, uh, because who, who are, you know, the borrowers from these institutions that are reliant are asking the Germans and the Americans and the French for, for financing assistance, and they try to put these conditions on them. And we just decided in the West that we're going to live with that hypocrisy, which is very frustrating, obviously, for Africans and has a lot of diplomatic blowback. Um, you know, the U.S. is seen as often patronizing um, and sanctimonious, and that has impacts on, you know, lots of other things like Africa's uh, position, you know, vis-a-vis the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I do think we need to be a lot more nuanced. We need to think of that, you know, all countries put energy security first. They all want to play a role in climate change, but we shouldn't expect the poorest countries uh, to, do, to do more than we're willing to do ourselves. Let's talk a little bit about what the Chinese are doing in Africa, because I think this is fascinating. And, and, you know, as one of the themes in U.S. foreign policy over the last decade or so has been the competition with China. I think it's sort of grown into an assessment that China is actually a threat. But at the beginning, there was this question of how we competed as with, the, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative and other rapacious debt trap <laughs> neocolonialist Chinese initiatives. So 
what China is doing in Africa is fascinating. A lot of their foreign policy is linked to their desire for a secure supply of energy for themselves, right? So they're investing in oil and gas exploration. They're investing in oil and gas exports from Africa. 25% of China's imported oil and gas comes from Africa. They're also holding up these, you know, they're holding up promises to to also invest in green energy and they have a couple of little small you know wind farm solar things around Africa but all the while they are digging deep in order to find that fossil fuel supply what are the implications of that well look if you're an african leader you love having multiple options right so it's great that the that that you can you're not entirely beholden to Western institutions, especially given the difficulty in getting financing for, for fossil fuel infrastructure. The, the main attraction from Chinese finance is that they come with package deals, right? So the Chinese will come, let's say they will build not just a power plant, but they will build the transmission lines, they will build the, the gas pipeline, they'll even build the downstream mining or industrial zone that would provide the anchor customer to help help finance that structure. And it all comes wrapped in a nice bow of state finance. Now, the challenge for the United States is we don't do that. We're, we're an a la carte investor. So if an American power developer wants to build a power plant, they want nothing to do with the fuel or the mining or even the transmission line. And so it puts a bigger onus on the host government to put that package together. And that's one of the big things that's frustrating, I think, from a U.S. policy perspective, is that we already have many of the tools we need to put together some reasonable packages that could be a credible alternative to Chinese or Russian uh, investment. But the U.S. interagency is you know, so broken and dysfunctional that we're not actually organized to use these tools together. That's something that my colleagues and I are, are, you know, trying to trying to work on. And I'm sure, you know, you both have experienced the interagency dysfunction, which is just so intensely frustrating. I want to talk to you about that. And I want to talk to you about Empower Africa. And I want to talk to you about, no pun intended, Samantha Power's upcoming visit to Africa, in which we're going to see them double down on some of these dumb ideas. But First, I wanted to say the point about China is they're also not encumbered by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, right? When we cede space to There's them- There's corruption in China? And in Africa, apparently, Mark. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Breaking news. But that's the whole point is if one of the things that you're troubled about, you know, and we're not talking about any of the other geostrategic issues here. If one of the things that we're troubled about in Africa is, you know, authoritarianism, lack of democratic and economic transparency and the rise, the unbelievably exponential rise of Salafi jihadi groups throughout Africa, then one of the things that you want to do is try to establish a better governance. And the Chinese have absolutely no interest in that. So we're actually kicking ourselves even doubly, not just on climate, but also on our geostrategic goals. Or have I got that wrong? No, look, I think you're right. I don't think the answer, though, is for us to, you know, to walk away from the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I think the answer is that the the United States needs to stay very engaged and try to raise standards and like let me just stick with my with my lane of the power sector 
in the power sector right now, if you were going to sign a power deal, those contracts would be would be kept secret, and the terms of those contracts are secret, even though there's almost always a public guarantee on the back end. The United States could play a much more important role in helping to create transparency standards around contracting, much as exists today in mining and the oil and gas sector, where contracts, because there's such a strong public interest, there's a lot of transparency around what governments are signing on behalf of their people. That doesn't exist today in the power sector. So if you are GE and you're trying to sign a deal with a country to build a power plant, you have no idea if they've already signed five other similar projects at what price with a Chinese developer. But if the U.S. could work with its allies to help create disclosure norms, we could help raise the the governance standards in the entire sector. And by the way, that would also help scale clean energy markets much, much faster than we're seeing today. So these are some of the like big issues that I'd like to see the U.S. government get more involved in in governance, less kind of finger wagging at our allies about who they're doing deals with. And let's just try to raise the bar for, for everybody so these competitive markets can be built. And just to put a cherry on top of the China section of this discussion, we had a podcast the other day where we were talking about the war on convenience here in America, where the left is trying to make everyone drive electric cars and give up their refrigerators and their gas-powered stoves and their gas-powered lawnmowers and all the rest of it. But with the electric cars, China controls something like 75% of the minerals and rare earths and the processing involved in building car batteries, right? A lot of the rest of it comes from Africa, like cobalt, for example, a lot of it comes from Congo. Isn't China buying up all the mines across Africa? So even if we're looking at like, you know, we don't want to get it from China, let's go to Africa to get it. Well, we're still buying it from the Chinese and still dependent on them for it over there. Well, I think the good news for the U.S. is that the old colonial model line in an African country and exporting raw materials to the rich countries for processing, like the African leaders have all said, we've had enough of that. We've seen that show. It does not help us. And so there's an opportunity right now, and I do think the administration fully understands this, that African leaders want partners that are going to help build industries, not just in the United States, but in their own countries as well. So Namibia, for example, is a potential huge source for lithium. They've just said they don't want to export raw lithium. They want to have some lithium processing at home. For the obvious reason, they want they want jobs. They don't want to just export raw materials. And so this is an opportunity for the United States to show that we're not just like China. We're not just trying to grab global supplies. We're actually willing to work with allies to help them build industries that would also help us diversify these important global supply chains. So I hope that we're going to seize that. Some of the rhetoric I'm hearing is very, very positive, but we'll have to see if you know, if the projects come through. Okay, so I'm now going to bring you to my A, number one favorite topic, something that Mark and I discuss in one direction or another all the time, and that is our climate czar, John Kerry, who has, by the way, just to rant for a second, in the last month gone to the royal wedding in Jordan, on the pretense that he's doing climate work and gone to, I think, what is it, London, Paris, and Berlin in the last week, where obviously, you know... he On a sailboat, of course. uh, Probably. (laughs) Probably, all the while speaking French. But 
you know, obviously... He, he wins sales. <laughs> <laughs> As I recall from 2004. <laughs> That, that was, yes, I do remember that indeed. Um, Windsurf, Todd, sorry, windsurfing. Todd, Todd, Todd is probably too young to remember this, but we, we know John Kerry very well from our years in the Senate, which is why we share pretty much everybody's disdain for his work. So he has become very obviously enmeshed in Africa and in pressing our friends and our enemies in Africa to adjust more towards renewables. But he seems to be... The best word here is perverting the intention of what was truly a great piece of great bipartisan piece of legislation that that passed out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee some years ago, Power Africa. Right. Power Africa is not just about renewables. Power Africa is about powering Africa. Weirdly. (laughs) Theoretically. Weirdly. (laughs) Yes. But. But the way that Kerry has rewritten this law is to press Africa only to use renewables and not to use conventional sources of energy. Can you just help educate us a little bit about this? Yeah. So Power Africa was launched. We just hit the 10-year anniversary. It's actually a terrific program. I've been a big fan of Power Africa. And the idea is that it's supposed to... When it's supposed to find projects that are close to reaching financial close, but that just need a little nudge to get over the final hurdle. And so far, that program has contributed toward, toward 14,000 megawatts of new power plants, which is fantastic. And the issue with Power Africa is that it was built to solve a problem from 10 years ago, which was that there were lots of projects that were like almost ready, but not quite ready. And Power Africa did a good job of getting them getting them ready. The problem today is very different, which is the, the pipeline is empty. And Power Africa right now is it's not built for solving that problem. It needs to do like a lot more in project development and system planning and all of the other pieces that are holding back a lot of energy investment. And I do think this this administration has gone too far in pushing, you know, essentially renewables only. That is not the law. The law actually explicitly says an all of the above approach. But there was guidance sent out to all embassies not long ago, which actually created a lot of confusion. It said there are some exceptions, but it was interpreted by the bureaucracy to mean we're not going to do fossil fuel projects. And that's been reinforced, you know, by some of of Secretary Kerry's rhetoric, and it actually doesn't really reflect where the administration is. Of course, the administration's not monolithic. President Biden had had an Africa strategy come out last summer, which explicitly said they would work with African allies on natural gas infrastructure. But that doesn't seem to have filtered, you know, down into the down into the into the country teams and the project teams, where we're still hearing a lot of stories of fossil fuel projects getting killed because nobody wants to, you know, anger the White House. Right. And that's that's obviously a problem. Right. But this is, you know, Power Africa was a a, a congressional baby. It was a bipartisan congressional initiative. And, you know, it was exactly the model of what you want Congress doing. And I mean, there aren't that many examples of that that we can find in the 21st century. And you're exactly right. They had the all of the above energy strategy. But I mean, in our research, what we see is that Power Africa projects basically dried up in 2018 and haven't really been chugging forward. Now, is that 
you know, they need a course correction, don't they? Well, they absolutely do. You know, part of it is that during COVID, a lot of projects fell apart. So a lot of it has to do with the global economic environment. But it gets back to my point earlier, which is we did not invest in building a pipeline of projects to push, a, you know, a dozen projects through the pipeline. You've got to develop many dozens of projects because not all of them are going to come to fruition. And what Power Africa did is it picked the low hanging fruit that was sitting there, but did not help grow the next generation of projects. And that's really where we are today. You know, there's another bipartisan initiative, probably the biggest development change since President Bush launched PEPFAR was the launch of the Development Finance Corporation, the DFC, um, which was bipartisan with Congress and with the Trump administration. It, It opened in January of 2000, and it is supposed to be the tip of the spear for the United States to invest in infrastructure overseas and to get to get energy projects going. Um, And so since January 2021, since the Biden administration came into office, they've done just one utility scale renewables project across all 54 African countries, just one small solar farm in Malawi. And again, that speaks to, you know, the global environment, but also that we are not, uh, you know, the pipeline is bare. And there's just no way that we are going to make a credible case that we are an alternative to China and Russia if we are just not able to get real projects going. So let's pull up for a second. So we got the Power Africa. We got the international institutions that are not funding gas and oil and coal production in the name of climate change. If we've got a desperately poor continent, right? So like two-thirds of Africans don't have access to reliable energy at all. If you increased emissions in Africa, according to The Economist, fivefold, and all of it came from natural gas, that would equal roughly 1% of global emissions. So it's not like we're in danger of turning Africa into a, you know, CO2, a major CO2 emitter. They're, they're so far behind economically the rest of the world, they're not even competing in terms yeah, of Mark, CO2 emissions, right? Mark, that's exactly right. And the one thing that people often get confused is they'll say like, oh, developing countries are are increasing their emissions. Well, not really. It's really Relative that's really just China. It's really <laughs> just China and a couple of other big Asian countries. Yeah. And then even in Africa, people are worried about I often hear people worried about a coal renaissance in Africa. That is not happening. The only coal I economy of any scale well, the only South Africa is is a coal economy and they are a meaningful emitter. But they're a complete outlier. There is not another country in Africa, not one, that that has any meaningful impact on global emissions. So Africa is just not the problem. You know, today Nigeria, which is an oil and gas producer, Nigerians, you know, you know, you know, an average American emits 33 times as much carbon dioxide as the average Nigerian. So Africa is not the problem, and Africa will not be the problem. Because there is, as you're suggesting, no plausible scenario where Africa's emissions matter to the global carbon budget. It's just, you know, it's just scaremongering to, to claim otherwise. Um, but what, what we've seen is that it's really difficult to curb emissions in your own country. It's much easier to change the financing rules for poor countries on the other side of the planet. And that is that the green colonialism that, you know, we talked about earlier. Yeah. But I really think that, you know, 
there's a reasonable path here where we can focus on getting our own emissions down, helping the big emitters, you know, like India and Indonesia and Vietnam and to China. get on the clean, cleanest path possible. I don't know how much we can influence China's path. But without but talking about China, it seems absolutely but China, pointless. But China pulled yeah. hundreds of, of millions of people out of poverty using coal, right? It, they, that, that's how they, they did they it. Did. They fueled their they economy did. with coal. And now the world is saying to the rest of the developing world, you can't pull your people out of poverty with coal. The problem in Africa isn't climate change. The problem in Africa is poverty. And so if we want to help alleviate poverty through free enterprise, then what we should be financing are the cheapest, most reliable energy projects that will help them do it at the cheapest cost and deliver the most reliable energy for their people. And instead, what we're doing is we're financing the most expensive because it's much more expensive to build wind and solar than it is to build coal and gas plants and the least reliable sources of energy and the most expensive sources of energy. It's like remember the, the movie The Jerk? When Steve Martin is the, at the gas station, you're probably too young to remember this. He's at the gas no, station no, I and, there's remember a, it. and there's a sniper shooting at him and he keeps popping the cans and he says, he hates these cans. It's like, no, he hates you. It's, you're focused on the wrong thing. We're focused on the wrong thing in Africa. The problem isn't climate. It's poverty. It's people who literally can't feed their families, who are living in absolute desperation. And we're focused on saying, you know what? You should be more green. That's what'll be good for you. What a, what a paternalistic, you know, elitist, racist outlook on the world. I'm glad I'm not the well, only ranter here. <laughs> tell me I'm well, wrong. Look, Mark, Mark, tell me no, wrong, no, Mark you're, ab- you're, you're absolutely right. The priority is, is ending poverty and especially creating jobs. We should fund And that's going to mean, well, the, the issue is, other than South Africa, coal is basically irrelevant. So, People worry either who are pro-coal or who are, uh, you know, scared to death of coal. Coal is irrelevant in Africa. Actually, on our website, we've got something we call the African Coal Death Watch, which we track every potential coal project that could be built in Africa. And the headline is, there aren't any. So, coal is not the issue. The issue is, as you suggest, Mark, how do we get people the cheapest, most reliable electricity as fast as possible so they can not only have lights at home, but build industry. You know, one of the most promising sectors in Africa is they've got tons of tons of educated young people who cannot find jobs. The potential in the digital economy is just massive. Look at Nigerian creative industries, music, film. You know, it's just taking off because there's so much talent that's being held back by lack lack of, among other things, electricity. And yeah, it's a um, disgrace. Todd, I think I think you're you're too nice. It's a disgrace. It it is. We are we are literally holding people back. We you know, we talk about Africa. We talk about the rights of Africans. We talk about democracy. We talk about the only continent Okay, with a positive growth rate at this point in terms of human capital, right? We are no longer at replacement. Europe is no longer at replacement. Asia is no longer at replacement. The only growing continent of human beings is Africa, and we want to keep our feet on their necks. But they're producing so they more can't... emitters, Danny. That's not a good thing. The population is growing, and it's uh, unsustainable. Now, now you've, you've lost control here, Todd. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, Mark and I are going to talk a little bit about what Congress is trying to do about this. But I really appreciate your highlighting this because, you know, it's not sexy like a like a submarine imploding. And it's not, you know, sexy like people having their heads cut off by by terrorists. But this is hugely important for the future. And if we don't educate, you know, policymakers about treating Africa, you know, as if they have justifiable aspirations that ought to be met, then we're going to continue doing the wrong thing. We're going to continue being ruled by John Kerry on this policy, and that needs to end. Your definition of sexy is very different than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. And and mine. (laughs) Todd, thank you. Thank you. You're doing great work, and we're really appreciative of the time you were willing to spend with us. Well, look, I appreciate both of you and especially, you know, for calling out some of the nonsense that, you know, um, uh, that we see that we see so often. So please keep it up. Thank you. We will. Don't worry. (laughs) And you too. Take care. All right, Danny. So what are we doing about it? We got the problem. What's the solution? So I'm really impressed with what Republicans in the House of Representatives. I know I don't often say <laughs> I don't often say those words. I'm impressed with Republicans in the House of Representatives. Chairman of the Foreign Operations Subcommittee of the Committee on Appropriations. Those are the people who write the checks. Those are the folks with the money. They just dropped their bill for this year, for fiscal year 2024, and they're actually really going after this bullshit paternalist neocolonialism. They are forcing Power Africa, the Power Africa project, to actually spend money on conventional energy before they start new renewable projects. Not because they are anti-renewables. I think everybody thinks that if we can do something you know, creative and productive with renewables, that's wonderful, but not at the expense of people's lives, not at the expense of people's livelihoods. So they're pushing on that. They're also stopping John Kerry. You heard me rant about the fact that John Kerry is trying to impose climate goals into every single development program, PEPFAR, women's empowerment, human trafficking, blah, 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 blah. Actually, the person I talked to about this used a really great expression. He said, John Kerry, John Kerry is a Nobody will know what this means, but you'll love it. Brown-headed cowbird. You know what? These are the birds that lay their eggs in other birds' nests so that they don't have to bring them up. (laughs) This is what John Kerry. This is what John Kerry is, right? He is laying his climate eggs in Africa, right? So that the Africans have to live with live with that. All right. If if somebody doesn't like that, they can go back to Mark's talk about sexy earlier on. But so that bill stops them from doing that. And I think that's hugely important. I think we need to get a grip on what unelected bureaucrats in this government are doing to try to keep Africa down. Absolutely. Look, the conditions in Africa are a disgrace. The irony is, is that Poverty actually across the world is getting better. People don't realize this, but actually the number of people, there was a Brookings study, which I've referenced on this podcast before, but in case you haven't heard it, Brookings study that in 2018, for the first time in human history, going back from 30,000 years ago when we first you know, left the swamp and began an agricultural-based society up until today, for the first time in history uh, in 2018, more people were middle class or rich in the world than were poor or on the edge of poverty. That is a stunning achievement. It happened with the collapse of socialism. 
It happened with the advancement of free market economics, free enterprise. A lot of it happened in China, where the Chinese regime has not democratized. They have unleashed, in their case, crony capitalism, but they abandoned the Mao economics for a little bit more Hayek and Friedman in the economic sphere. But they did it with coal. They did it with coal. They lifted 700 million people in China out of poverty powered by coal, powered by fossil fuels. And so it is it is the use of fossil fuels and the advancement of free enterprise that has lifted people out of poverty. And we're basically telling the Africans, we did it. Ha ha. Tough on you. You don't get to have the same opportunity. That is that is bigoted. So to use your expression, I want to leave our, our listeners with the, the cherry on the cake. Not all of you will have heard of Samantha Power, one of the biggest hypocrites in the United States, frankly. But she's the head of the United States Agency for International Development. The lady who said that she should have resigned over the Rwandan genocide, but then sat there during the Syrian, you know, this, this, when the, the Syrian civil war. And half a million ha- Syrian people and, die. And, and lectures to us on morality, right. Well, so she's about to take a taxpayer-funded jaunt to Africa to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Power Africa. And you're not going to believe what she's going to do. She's going to, she's going to, a little bird happened to tell me, not everybody at AID is down with this insanity. She's going to announce $35 million for, wait for it, carbon-free projects on and off the grid. Now, remember what we said, right? Power Africa hasn't really been doing much since 2018, but she's going to announce $35 million for carbon-free. And she says this will mobilize $4.7 billion in public and private funding, okay, to support clean energy generation capacity. I'm sorry. In what world is that going to happen? It's not- in what world is that feasible? And what are you going to count? Are you going to count somebody being able to power a freaking light bulb in their closet as connectivity? I mean, th- these people are an embarrassment to our country. Well, also, why is Samantha Power deciding what power sources that the people of Africa have? And this is the Mark, you, you know, don't we understand. Get in- you you don't understand. These these people aren't developed like Samantha Power. So, They're so, not advanced like Samantha and Power. And th- we've talked a little bit about in this, but we didn't get into in this podcast is is the ESG movement in corporate America, right? Because right. you know we're talking about how the international development banks, which fund a lot of projects in Africa, are not funding anything that's not climate neutral. We're talking about how the federal our government is imposing these climate policies. And so poor African countries that are dependent on European and Western institutions for this financing can't get the projects that they need to power their economies. It's also the private sector. You know, there are banks that openly say, we will not finance any fossil fuel projects anymore. And so you can't even get private sector to finance these projects in Africa. And here's the irony of it. They are one of the most fossil fuel abundant continents on the earth. And so, you know, we're perfectly... That's why it's so convenient for us to go and take their stuff. So it's literally neocolonialism. We are going and taking their fossil fuels, but not allowing them to build a plant down the road to use the fossil fuels that they're they're producing from their own ground themselves. And by the way, we are to get our, our cobalt and our lithium and all these things like that. We're sending big gas powered earth movers over to Africa to dig up their land to get those minerals for our electric cars so we can have our Teslas here and virtue signal to the world about about how wonderful we are. But so we can chug out all that carbon into the African air to feel better about ourselves. But we can't help the Africans live a better life by having their reliance on fossil fuel energy. It's disgusting. 
And, and anyone who tells you, who complains about systemic racism here in America and how our country is so racist and we were founded to perpetuate slavery, ask them what have they done to help Africans get cheap, reliable energy? Because it's, it's utter, utter hypocrisy. I'm glad to have ceded my renting seat to Mark Thiessen today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with more <laughs> if renting. you're still listening at this point. <laughs> we'll be back with more renting next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.